This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. What the hell is a pension plan, and why does it matter for me or other Americans? The ability to retire, the ability to even hop on an operating subway, all of these everyday concepts that underpin the notion of decency, dignity, and America's infrastructure are actually touched by the Comptroller's Office. Joining the pod today is Jonathan Trichter, a longtime advisor to campaigns and a longtime financier from the private sector, but a first-time candidate. And he's also a Democrat, but running on the Republican ticket. So why is he leaning in, and why is he telling New Yorkers that the Comptroller's Office has more superpowers than Superman or you or I would ever even know? Coming up, John Trichter on American Enough. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Often when we discuss the direction of America, whether it's supposed to encompass certain values, prescribe certain ideologies, or even just enact certain programs, we think of the top. We think of the Oval Office. We think of Congress. We think of every sort of depiction that we often see portrayed in pop culture and mainstream media of shows that articulate corridors of power, state capitals, mayors, positions that everyone is sort of familiar with and positions that by design are sort of inculcated in the minds of what power means in K through 12 civic lessons and history books and social studies classes. But what's often overlooked is the deep bench of talent, participation, and civic direction that is shaped by positions that you or I, maybe when we walk into the voting boot, aren't even entirely sure what they mean or who they are. One such position particularly captures the attention of many state programs in terms of how to finance them, how to retain their longevity, and how to make sure that they are controlled for adequate, responsible, and important sorry, expenditures that both reflect the priorities of an administration and actually the outcomes that it sets to do, and that is of the state controller. Oftentimes, and particularly just last Tuesday, when voters from around the country entered their own voting boots to select individuals in primary races, and notably in the state of California, a primary race that had high Democratic turnout, you see a lot of participation for what is happening at the, quote, top of the ticket, mayors, governors, even lieutenant governors. But when you get to that point in your ballot in which you start to see positions like state superintendent of schools or state comptroller or state controller, you kind of scratch your head and wonder, do I know these names, but also, do I know these roles? Enter Jonathan Trichter, an individual that has not only spent an enormous amount of time dedicated to shaping public and private financial institutions, but someone who has seen the power, capability, and frankly, the untapped potential of one of those roles that is often overlooked, the controller. While in 2010, Jonathan has served as a policy director for a prior state comptroller's office, his work has spanned the the reach of state and local governments, identifying major long-term liabilities in government-funded programmatic accounts, as well as financial programmatic accounts, to make sure that they're solvent and they work for everybody. 
As someone who's been always active in New York government policy and civic causes for years, Jonathan's career spans New York City government and political campaigns, but also brings to the table a very unique and precise understanding of private sector motivations, financial solvency, and the way that we can really infuse, in his words, a superpower in the role. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining American Enough. Vikram, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, so, so maybe we could just start with a basic understanding of the seat that you're actually seeking in New York. Uh, is it a statewide seat? Does it have um, sort of a reach in terms of what the administration of the governor of the state wants to do? Or is this more so a financial arm or institution of the government that makes sure that certain programs like pensions or other uh, financial instruments are actually solvent over a period of time? Yeah, so all of the above. I would argue, and I think persuasively, that the New York State Comptroller is by far the most powerful controller's office in America. And while it sounds bureaucratic, it's actually um, afforded superpowers. And that's the kind of uh, analogy I often use, that the controller, the state controller has these superpowers untapped and underappreciated to do a tremendous amount of good for uh, fiscal issues uh, in New York State and also just ordinary New Yorkers. And so if you break down the superpowers into individual um, capabilities, you know, like Superman could fly. Let's start with uh, superpower number one. The controller cannot fly, Vikram, but our controller is the sole fiduciary <laughs> of a roughly $200 billion public pension fund. And that makes him equal on uh, in terms of market power to a Saudi prince, uh, and and with great responsibility comes, uh, or great with great power, of course, becomes great responsibility. And in this case, I would argue that's the responsibility to tell the truth. So it's impossible to think of um, another example where a huge fiscal asset is so regularly. Um, lied about and propagandized at the state level in New York or, or anywhere else, at least at the state level, right? I don't know how deeply you edit your podcast, but if you'd like, um, pause it after I'm about to give you or wage this challenge. I would challenge you and listeners to Google the following phrase. The fund has consistently been ranked as one of the best managed and best funded plans in the nation. That's quote unquote. If you Google that, you'll find that quote over 200 times in search engines and it's been said by our state controller i guess under the theory that if you say something often enough it's perceived to be true but nothing could be further from the truth in fact over the course of my campaign i'll show that our public pension system is hiding upwards of a 50 billion let's call it an off balance sheet pension debt and the private sector analog to give your listeners some relative understanding of what we're talking about here is something like the special purpose vehicles that enron used to park off-balance sheet debt so that accountants couldn't recognize it or calculate it. And that accounting practice didn't end well, uh, and nor will this. The truth is that New York State has about 80 cents for every dollar that we owe 1.1 million New Yorkers who are going to depend on our pensions for their retirement. And how we actually make up the 20 cents that we haven't funded is going to be a very important part of New York's fiscal future. So that's, that's superpower number one. Superpower number two is that our state government is largely considered the most corrupted and inefficient state government in America. Some of your listeners from other states might find that surprising. They may think their state governments are the worst, but according to most independent rankers of these things, New York is number one. Uh, and so with the controller's office comes the power to audit state agencies, um, programs, and entities. And many of your listeners may know that we're having- is this is this is this any – sorry to interrupt. Is this any state agency that might have um... – uh, that the, the controller's office has purview to overlook at and audit, or is this cabinet to certain agencies? No, 
It's, it's the constitutional power for the controller to audit state agencies is incredibly broad. I could cite the language, but I put you guys to sleep. I'm afraid that talking about a controller's race is already at risk of putting too many people to sleep. So let me just stop there and say it's just a broad, open power. And I'll give you uh, something interesting to think about. In December of 2017, a single reporter from the New York Times undercovered most of the fundamental rudimentary problems with uh, the MTA, which is our subway system here in uh, New York City, which is a state agency. Um, that was one reporter, and he had two researchers working for him on the investigative piece. And among the many things he found was that we're spending five to seven times more than the average for a mile of new subway track than any other place in the world that builds new subway mileage. And that includes France, by the way. Um, and there are a couple of other policy analysts at think tanks in New York City and state that have uncovered what's really wrong with our MTA, what the root causes are. Now, the controller, by contrast has a tremendous number of power, power to audit, we've already covered that, and also a tremendous number of people and bandwidth to go after the MTA and uncover problems at places like that before things start to break down. And here I'm going to ask you, um, we'll do a little uh, back and forth, I'm going to ask you, take a guess, if you had to, how many people actually work at the state controller's office, given that you probably never heard of it until, you know, we, you and I started uh, exchanging emails. I'm going to... Um... I'm going to say at least a couple hundred. Very good guess. Uh, the answer is 2,600, over 2,600, and an operational budget of $325 million. It's literally a mini, mini army, right, Vikram? I mean, we could the controller's office could invade Rhode Island. Uh, it, it's a huge office <laughs> where, where very little is done with it. And as a great example, the controller was set up to uncover problems at places that tend to the vital infrastructure in New York State. And our current controller, a guy named Tom DiNapoli, has totally fallen down on the job. And what we know about the MTA, we know because we've experienced it as New Yorkers riding the subway trying to get to work on time, or because of the New York Times and one reporter at the Times, or because of a couple of policy policy analysts at some think tanks around town. So superpower number two is really to stop infrastructure from breaking and stop stop things from from, from crumbling before, you know, recognize that the dam is busted before it starts to leak. That's superpower number two. And then there are plenty of others. Another superpower, number three, is that the controller is the chief fiscal officer of New York, and that comes with all sorts of responsibilities, including the power to certify our state budget, which is notoriously uh, corrupted, um, mismanaged, uh, structurally imbalanced, uh, with plenty of one-shots and fiscal gimmicks that basically push liabilities out into the future. And it's a terrible example of intergenerational theft year in and year out. Our controller has to certify that, and the current controller has effectively defined down that responsibility to be almost ministerial. And it's largely because he's everybody's best friend in Albany. He's only an insider in New York state government who goes along and gets along. By contrast, I like to say, which is true, I have no friends in Albany. If I were to win this office, I would have to purchase the proverbial dog because I otherwise would not have a pal around town. And so I would not certify any budget <laughs> that wasn't structurally balanced. Uh, fiscally sound and free of um, economic boondoggles that only go to enrich political cronies. Uh, I would take my pen and go home. I'd look right at our governor and I'd say, Cynthia Nixon, uh, I'm not signing this budget. Uh, and that might be an inside joke for <laughs> listeners, but uh, some, of, some of them may know that Cynthia Nixon is currently primarying our Democratic governor. Right. Right, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's incredible because in many respects, as in you, know, you were sort of self-deprecatingly joking, this can be seen as a sleepier office when it comes to governance. Um, and yet, uh, in a very fundamental and foundational way, it's an office um, whose superpowers, as you laid out, touches the face of 
um, New York living, American living, day in and day out. Um, as you mentioned, it has broad authorities, not just to check in on the budgets of various agencies, but to make sure that they're adequately funded and providing services commensurate to that funding. Um, if you are a New York resident or a tourist, that MTA system, that subway system are you know key arteries that pump commerce, people, and opportunities in and out of the city and around the city. And for that to not be solvent or to ha run into any sort of financial woe is a huge problem, not just in terms of the, the health of the state's infrastructure, but frankly, even just the ability for everyday New Yorkers to participate in their lives and the local economy. Separately, as you mentioned on the pension side, you know, for, for all listeners unfamiliar with traditional pensions, um, this tends to be defined as a defined benefit plan. You know, employees typically receive a payment equal to a percentage um, out of their average salary, and that is often matched um, and often maintained by third-party entities. And many public workers, government workers, um, are often subject to um, pretty robust and, and quite healthy pension plans to help support long-term economic mobility and retirement, particularly in their later years. But if that pension plan is underfunded or in any way at risk of solvency, then in the same way that a subway system would make you late to your meeting or meeting up with a friend, a insolvent pension system really makes you late to this concept of the basic American idea that if you work hard and do the right thing, then you can, you know, bank on that prosperity, however limited that prosperity might be. So the controller's office, from your perspective, not only touches a broad range of institutions and has a lot of power, but can really inform the day-to-day -day interaction of people's lives. And, and so I guess I'm curious from your perspective, as you've been campaigning for this position, how have you sort of connected the dots for prospective voters, either in terms of them thinking, hey, who are you? Let me hear about your story, or those who even give zero shits about the role and perhaps don't necessarily see it as vital to their daily lives. How do you actually make sure you overcome that dialogue to showcase and underscore the urgency and efficacy of a role like this? So uh, the first thing I do is I come on podcasts like this and I broadcast my message and this should get out to, you know, zillions of people and everybody will hear us in the clarion call and fall into line. But <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, in addition to that, let me sum up um, many of your points, uh, or at least directionally, where, the, where your points, your excellent points uh, will, will leave us. Uh, you know, the answer is that sometimes in American politics, there's politics uh, and governance. There's, there are down-ballot races where you can find political value. And by political value, in my case, I mean an asymmetrical power in order to do good. Right? This is absolutely the case in my race where it's an office that has asymmetrical and untapped executive powers to do good. By contrast, a lot of offices people run for have legislative authority and powers, and that always comes with a high degree of what's called entropy. To get anything done legislatively requires legislation, along with consensus, political will, among sometimes varied stakeholders. And so by comparison, the powers that this controller has doesn't require legislation, and I can unilaterally do much of what I think is wrong, fix much of what I think is wrong in Albany just on day one and just by, just by the, the powers of the office itself. Um, and then I think, you know, that leads to the second question, or at least the part 1A, part 1B, which is how do you kind of break through some of the national mood when it comes to the partisanship uh, at the national level? And what I've been doing, what I've been saying is that there are positions in America where party should not matter. Um, 
inevitably this begs the question, which elected positions sh- shouldn't be that partisan or that party shouldn't matter as much? And I think the answer to many, uh, many of the, I think the answer to that question in many cases are state and local executive uh, elected positions. There are n- definitely a number of intractable issues in American politics today and even yesterday that just can't be negotiated right in order to resolve them. Let's just pick one, which is a good example and a bad example, we'll call it abortion, right? There's there's some kind of unnegotiated um, uh, factors that go into the abortion issue, which you just can't resolve that through negotiation, given what some believe on one side of the issue and others believe on the other. And that issue has nothing to do with the state controller's race. None of the intractable issues in America's politics today at the national level ever touch the controller's race. The controller covers in New York State those issues which could be resolved if people understood them and were reasonable about them um, and upfront and recognized and shared sacrifice or shared you know, potential uh, benefits from the resolution. And so those kinds of issues and those kinds of uh, offices shouldn't be partisan. So that's one of the things I've been trying to say. Victor, you also touched about you touched on the pension crisis or the, in America, and, and the other thing to say about it is the, our knowledge of pub, the public pension crisis has increased over the last several years and even over the last year and a half, um, especially with the, the problems we see in Puerto Rico, right? Puerto Rico is, is at the vanguard of the public pension crisis, but there are other states and municipalities and territories not far behind, Illinois, Chicago, New Jersey, um, Puerto Rico was first, tragically, but others are coming. And I talk about that, and that should be a nonpartisan issue as well, because pension expenses and the crisis itself um, is going to be a cash sink. It's going to suck up a lot of available resources that will then crowd out the resources we have left for the core progressive services that maybe your Democratic friends and my Democratic friends, Big D, hold so dear. So this is another place where we can find something that's nonpartisan. And the other thing having to do with the pensions crisis that should be nonpartisan is just the simple math involved, right? We're talking about somewhere between potentially 4 and $8 trillion in public pension debt in America today. And that's going to eventually require some kind of bailout. And, and that, amount, that amount surpasses the SNL, AIG, TARP, and the auto industry bailouts combined. So it's going to have to be a, uh, a reckoning at some point. And like the housing market collapse, it's a mathematically unavoidable uh, event. And it's also nonpartisan. And so I try to talk about substance. Uh, I try to – I'm going to come up campaign over the course of the next couple of months is going to publish a number of what I hope are uh, eye-opening and illustrative white papers that touch upon these issues. I hope they get wide coverage in the local political press. And among many things, I hope to put the lie – to a myth that our current controller has been spinning about our public pension system now for 10 years. Unfortunately, our own political uh, reporting class doesn't have the necessary background expertise or resources to uncover that fiscal myth on their own. But I will show empirically and by every objective, reasonable benchmark that the public pension system in New York State has underperformed the market, its expectations, and all other standards by which you would measure a large public pension fund's performance. Um, and so by doing that, I hope it'll create enough of a ripple that people will be persuaded to not worry as much about partisanship at the national level and what is a deeply blue state, New York, where I come from, uh, and look to hire a person that actually has the professional qualification acquired in the private sector, the skills that are necessary to acquire in the private sector to do a job that should be professional, nonpartisan, so that we could effectively avoid the worst of it. A crisis that is undoubtedly coming, and that so then we could decide and have the financial freedom to do with our resources things that the state, the rest of the state, decides to do with it. And that should be, I believe, nonpartisan. 
so there's there's definitely a lot to unpack there, but I kind of want to start on um, the concept of defining a bit further a pension system and how it does impact our lives, whether we're seeing it day to day or at this very moment in our individual lives or not. Um, you, you had mentioned sort of a a key necessity for a role like this, or frankly, even just managing pension funds to be, you know, postpartisan or nonpartisan, as well as, you know, some critiques against how the incumbent has been performing and managing that fund, or at least talking about it um, with some uh, underinformed information, facts or, or falsehoods. I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, if you could tell our listeners a bit more about pensions as just sort of a fundamental concept. How are they um, informing the budget and sort of the broader um, system of priorities when it comes to a governor or a state government in, in a place like New York or Puerto Rico? Is this something that lawmakers and elected officials and frankly even voters should be spending a lot of time focused on adjusting, cleaning up, investing in? Or is it when you set up a pension fund, is it a bit turnkey? And then and maybe sort of if you could layer on top of that, this notion of um, a, a nonpartisan, postpartisan office, are pension funds, you know, I guess maybe building off the first question, are they ever politicized? Not necessarily by if you have an R or a D or another letter next to your name on a ballot, but can there be priorities or stakeholder interests that sway sort of the management or efficacy and payout of a pension fund? Or is it sort of mostly just focused on the math and the empirics that you're hoping to bring to the table? Mm -hmm. yeah, great question. Let me start with the, the second question. We'll come back to the first one. Our controller has injected an unprecedented amount of politics into our pension funds holdings, and it's part of the reason why it's underperformed. Since 2010, controller Tom DiNapoli, who's the New York State controller, has sponsored 52 shareholder proposals uh, impacting the largest 250 companies in America. And 50 of those proposals were related to social issues, uh, by far the most of pretty much anyone anywhere who's engaged in this kind of shareholder activism with a progressive political agenda. So why does that matter? Well, um, Let's just go with an example that you might find interesting because recently our controllers turned his activism to a new punching bag, the tech industry and the social media industry. He's accused Facebook, Twitter, and Google of exposing their users to hate speech and sexual harassment. He's demanded they take steps that could impact their business models. Um, and I'm talking at a very basic level, you know, the free content for ad targeting um, understanding that is between users of Facebook and Facebook itself. The logical conclusion, if I could take a step, is that other companies in the space that offer free use or free content in exchange for ad targeting are at risk of falling prey to politically ambitious pension trustees who use the pension fund and its market power to promote themselves politically, right? Who's next? Seamless, Netflix? And whatever legitimate issues there are in the tech industry today, our own controller, Tom DiNapoli, who's at the vanguard of this movement, has no experience with them. I guarantee you that. Very limited understanding, nor does his staff, which is very lean in the particular department, despite its 2,600 uh, employees, most of which you know, I'm not sure what they do. Um, and accusing the companies that I named of grave offenses is, is simultaneously problematic, given that our pension fund holds roughly $3 billion in just those tech firms. And those companies in particular have been especially lucrative for our state pension fund over a time period when other investments by Tom DiNapoli have way underperformed what is required to fund the retirement annuities of our, of our pensioners. So as a lifelong long politician with no financial experience, it's likely that Tom DiNapoli has just gravitated towards something they understand, which is playing politics with the pension system. But to be very, very clear, it is the fiduciary's responsibility to maximize value for shareholders. And if a shareholder wants to donate his entire pension to the Sierra Fund, that's his or her um, uh, right. Uh, but it's the controller's 
duty to give the retirees the financial freedom and flexibility to do that. So there you see something where a very progressive controller in a very progressive state who has 200 billion bucks um, behind him is basically taking aim at uh, core American capitalism, which um, is doubly ironic because he's dependent upon the investment returns to successfully safeguard uh, pension fund retirees here in, in New York State. It's a strange disconnect. Um, you, know, you don't see, you see people go on CNBC if they commit any sins at all. The investors usually talk up their book, which means you know they invest in a company, and then they speak about the value of its stock, and then they hope to uh, to realize gains from their media appearance. Whereas our own controller talks down his book, and I'm, I'm not sure where that comes from or how that's helpful. And I believe it's in direct conflict with his responsibilities to manage our pension fund for retirees and not for his own political sake. The second question, and, and yes, I'm sorry. Th- th- those. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. The second question you ask is you asked a little bit for a primer on pensions and kind of how they worked and why they were important and why we should be concerned about them as an everyday citizen who might not be in the uh, a member of the pension system. And let me try to be very quick because it can get uh, a little techy or a little technical. But, you know, pension systems are backstopped by citizens in, in every state. So if the pension system falls short on its, uh, on its uh, investment returns, then the pension system has the ability or the crutch to basically effectively raise taxes on citizens in order to make up for those shortfalls. So every time DiNapoli falls short, every time he is distracted by politics at the expense of returns, um, he's able to go to the well of taxpayers and increase taxes each and every year. And the tax increases are far enough away from DiNapoli, disconnected enough, that it's hard to blame him for it because it's, it's just hard to see. There's an opaqueness to it. He basically charges cities, states, the so-called employers of pensioners uh, a percentage of the salaries that they that they give out or they pay each and every year, and that percentage fluctuates based upon investment returns the year before. <laughs> Excuse me. So, what happens is states and counties and municipalities have to cough up, just like I, I did. Excuse me, have to cough up uh, more money each and every year with variability and and you know very limited foresight to know exactly what they will owe, and that makes financial planning. For their other core services, schools, their own police forces, hiring for firemen, fire departments, uh, infrastructure projects, libraries, it makes it very hard to plan. And so we, we need to worry about pension costs because it disrupts at the very basic level where services hit citizens, the amount of planning and services we can provide because um, we often don't know how much money we'll have for them given the variability of pension returns. And for, from from your perspective, given the the concern around how you feel, either the staff, you know, the, that that twenty six hundred set of um, individual civil servants, certainly uh, hard workers working on behalf of the state in their own right, but in terms of your concern and uh, around how much um, money, funding, staffing, personnel, resources are going into the pension, and yet it's sort of um, you know from your point of view less an ideal state of play. Uh, that that is a a recurring theme that we have seen not only in terms of New York based elections but in elections around the country this year. This sense of a lack of faith in public institutions, a um, a, a high level of concern in our elected officials ourselves, um, and maybe even a distrust for um, the state of America's kind of political nature. And of course, you might be able to cabin in the root cause of this to either a couple of of core institutions and core 
arguments playing out in the country, but they seem to have reverberated around the perception of different races, of different candidates, and different dialogues that occur even at the hyper local level. Um, you know, in the California primaries last Tuesday uh, on June 5th, it was actually notably said by the lieutenant governor, who was the top Democratic vote getter that day um, to become the next governor, uh, Gavin Newsom, that California, for example, can be the face of the quote unquote resistance or in the Alabama primaries, there were conversations that were hit a quite a, a national fever pitch of coverage when it came to replacing the seat that was once vacated by our now Attorney General Jeff Sessions. In each of these, there was conversations around how that vote that election, that race, however localized and however not germane to another race going on in another court of the country, had long-lasting impacts on the direction of America. Mm -hmm. Putting aside the specific politics of those individual races, I'm curious why you see a role in public service, an elected role, as being um, an effective way to sort of shape the future of New York-based programs from a fiduciary respect, uh, perspective. You've had an incredibly storied career and successful career um, from a perch in the private sector. You've certainly spent time working on behalf of public initiatives and working with elected officials themselves. But as you sort of step into this light of being a public servant, being a father yourself, how do you sort of see the importance of stepping into an elected capacity um, for sort of the future of not just the programs that the controller's office will touch, but also for the future of the state? And kind of how do you square that with the effectiveness that you've been able to have on many of those programs from your private life? Is one sort of more important or more compelling than the other? Or is that sort of a false question and yeah. premise to even begin with? So why the hell am I doing this, right? If you had to boil down that question, that that might be the short question, the short way to ask it. And and you sound like the wife, Vikram. Uh, it depends on both you and my wife, though. Let me just say there are some days in the campaign trail where I ask myself the same question. Um, and then to back up, you know, for better or for worse, in my career, I like to zig while others zag. And so you made the point starting your question that uh, in many races, even smaller races, has been a, a nationalizing of campaigns. And so you know, Gavin Newsom's running for governor of uh, California, but he seems to be running against Trump. Um, I'm running against uh, Tom DiNapoli, who has not tried to nationalize this race yet. But if he does, if he does try to run against Trump, I would certainly encourage him to do so. You know, the field's open in 2020, Tom. Jump, knock yourself out. And what I mean by I like to zag while others zig, or zig while others zag, is that while people are nationalizing races, I'm kind of localizing mine, right? We've talked now for a few minutes, you and I, and we talked beforehand, and I've made the point um, in other ways, you know, roundabout ways, that what I'm trying to do is focus on the actual professional responsibility of this office, which requires private skills that I acquired over my private sector career that make me perfectly suited for this office. I don't believe it should be ideological. I don't believe it should be partisan. And by the way, I'm a formerly registered Democrat who was recruited by the Republicans to run on the Republican line in New York State because of my unique background and suitability for this office. And let me just add a personal plug. That's the first time since 1970 uh, in a statewide office that anyone's been given such a dispensation. And I like to think it's because the Republicans here in New York State agree with me on this particular race in this office that uh, it shouldn't be nationalized. It should be a professional office. And so my challenge, my headwind, is trying to walk through um, – a national discussion we're having about which issues and which races should impact uh, how we look at politics on the national level and focus on what I could do if a professional with no friends in Albany who's hell-bent on disrupting a corrupted status quo in Albany gets to an office where there's an executive power and tools 
to effectuate real fiscal positive change um, at a place that's been consistently ranked as the most corrupt and deficient state capital in the country. Uh, that's what I'm trying to sell to voters. That's what I believe in. And, and uh, I have, I'm not going to lie, that I mentioned that there's some headwinds when it comes to national politics, but I hope that the fact that I've got cross-party support, that I have a track record of working with Democrats and Republicans, that's indisputable, will make it difficult for my challenger to tie me to any national issues of which I have not weighed in on and, and will not weigh in on. So let me stop there. I, I, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, I, li- I like that notion that you laid out that in, in an era in which many are trying to nationalize every race and every conversation, um, you are, are intentionally aiming to to localize it, right, and keep it not only relevant to what the role is and what the conversation ought to be about that role, but also relevant to voters and residents of the state and what might really, uh, in a material way, affect them day in and day out. Um, that that sense of localization is also interesting because it forces um, the conversation to really be about you know what the incumbent has or has not been able to achieve, as well as what a controller's authorities are and and why they can be superpowers when wielded in the right way. Um, one thing that's almost impossible to to sort of keep local and not sort of take out of any sort of political race, even if you're if you're talking about a, a hyper local school board election is party affiliation, um, whether or not people in this country focus on party, um, or even like our two party system, um, or are sort of disgusted about it, even in in social studies books, um, in public schools around the country, the notion of a Democrat and a Republican, if for nothing else, them being associated with certain colors, certain animals from, you know, donkeys and elephants, have, are really ingrained in the body politic of America's consciousness, even for those that don't even really like to fudge with politics in any way. Um, you had mentioned that this is sort of a historic um, and unique race, given that your your prior Democratic affiliations are sort of to the average bystander, not called into question, but obviously um, put in a very, very different light if you are um, endorsed by, you know, a Republican ticket on participating in a Republican ticket. Uh, but, you know, many might argue that that shows good faith of an individual really trying to focus on the role and, and sort of bring his or her insights to bear, regardless of that party affiliation, regardless of whether one view or not is the right one. From your perspective, was it difficult to square, given that you have been supportive of democratic policies, democratic candidates, and democratic outcomes, for you to square the the opportunity to really start a conversation around how the controller's office ought to be used and effectively managed versus the need to kind of affiliate yourself with a separate party? Or do you sort of see that as a historic opportunity to, to bridge a divide between the two parties? Walk us through sort of what that rationale was and, and how you sort of now embody the view of, quote unquote, being a Republican or, quote unquote, being a Democrat now that you literally are of one mind but occupying a different set of clothes around it. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to lie again. There was some resistance in the Republican Party to my candidacy given my past, but very little compared with the relative openness given my background and how people came to understand my background and the opportunity that I presented for the state party. And so I was mostly gratified. I really almost almost entirely gratified by the openness with which I was embraced by the Republican Party as well as the conservative, big C conservative party here in New York State who bought into my fiscal philosophy irrespective of my background. So it's been in New York State so far in the, in the primary process, given that I've got two ballot lines in New York State now and a straight shot of the general election, I can't really complain. 
uh, um, uh, very, I found it to be a very accepting atmosphere and landscape for me here in New York, given you know what my vision is. And I guess what I've learned about um, all of that, despite the partisan divisions in America and despite the fiscal focus of this office, is that if you're substantive and if you're right-minded, you could find uh, people who will agree with you and could be convinced uh, you can make the sale and, and find uh, landsmen, fellow landsmen who will buy into that philosophy. Um, and I, I'll point out here that you know I'm often called a fiscal conservative in my own state of New York, and I would argue that really I'm more fiscally reasonable and fiscally rational, and that only in New York does that make you a fiscal conservative. But uh, on top of all that, the one thing I have tried to do, just given the lack of civil discourse in, in public conversation today. I've tried to also zig while others zag when it comes to that and imbue my campaign with as much love as one could possibly uh, imbue a campaign for state controller. It's kind of hard to do, but I tried in the places and I've ma- I managed when I accepted in my acceptance speech at the state party for the Republican nomination, I managed to execute a sweet little symbolic gesture uh, in that speech after securing the Republican nomination. Um, in the speech for uh, my spe- acceptance speech for state controller, right, the uh, race that I'm going to cite many data. Um, the only numbers I cited in the speech were 133 and 1, and they were a reference to a psalm. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And it was the largest applause line I've ever gotten in any speech I've ever given. I've only given <laughs> now, you know, maybe six to eight political speeches in my life. So I think there's room for uh, politicians to embrace love and a message of love, but also uh, a real outlook um, uh, in their campaign, uh, an inclusive, loving campaign, even for those who disagree with them. Um, we're all fellow Americans. We all have uh, generally, generally, we all have the same goals in mind. We have may have different ways of believing uh, 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 the straightest path to achieving those goals. And once you accept that and understand that, and then just given the, my past and that I know so many big D Democrats and big D, big P progressives, uh, I know that they're good people in their hearts, even if they're misguided when it comes to managing a, a public pension and when it comes to balancing um, a P&L sheet, when it comes to right-sizing and funding our long-term liabilities and what that really takes in terms of sacrifice and, and what it means to reduce taxes in order to generate uh, economic growth. Um, despite those differences of opinions and, and I mean, a lack of uh, sophistication among some of my former liberal friends, some of my friend, liberal friends, they, they, I still treat them with respect and love and the race, my race will reflect that. And so far, it's worked by at least keeping me out of the kind of um, uh, partisan, bitter partisan divisions that imbue our political discourse today. And and maybe let me um, kind of conclude by asking a bit more of a personal question. Uh, you you are no stranger to campaigns, um, as you said. You, you're you're no stranger to uh, making smart strategic investments, taking a look at a profit and loss sheet, making decisions that have not only impacted the outcome of privately held enterprises, but also publicly held offices. Um, But you've done that from the perch of being a private citizen, even as a campaign operative or advisor. um, There there is a sense of distinction between, you know, being the candidate versus advising the candidate. I'm curious, what do you feel now that you've transitioned, you know, from a quote unquote civilian to a, a publicly profiled candidate um, that does give, as you mentioned, more political speeches now than you have in the past, um, that does media interviews, and that really tries to offer a retail conversation, a face-to-face conversation with New Yorkers as to what the importance is um, for for this run, um, for, for this comptroller run. And I'm, I'm curious, do you feel that you've learned something different either about yourself or about New Yorkers um, 
in in this uh, current current capacity as a candidate that maybe you didn't know about yourself or about New Yorkers when you were a private individual? Yeah. So let me start with you know the reasons for it. It's rather a unlikely candidacy. I never actually thought of running for anything myself before. And the reason I decided to jump in ultimately was because my private sector investment experience and just economics have always uh, led me to a strategy of buying low and selling high. And this was a perfect opportunity. I thought there was tremendous upside if I could inhabit this office to do so much good to disrupt the dysfunctional, fiscally dysfunctional Albany status quo in a position that was underutilized, underappreciated, and untapped. And the interest uh, in running for this office this year, for whatever reason, was a little bit lower than it's been in the past. And so I threw a couple of elbows and started making the case that uh, I could do this um, and, and bring the, the fight to make the case effectively. And, and then, I, you know, all of a sudden I went to the bathroom at a meeting and I came back and I was the Republican nominee. What do you know? Uh, no, it wasn't that easy at all. But the, the point being is that there's a tremendous upside if I could win this race. I made the calculation that it was worth the investment on the front end, given the potential good you can do in the back end. It's, it's probably the same calculation that's um, being made by venture capitalists all over the country when they invest in media companies, something you might be more familiar with than I am. But you make a small bet um, with big upside, and you could do very well in life. And so that's what I've done. That was my calculation and why I entered the race. In terms of how it's affected or impacted my opinion of public life and, and civic life and politics, um, it's, it's definitely given me more, I have more sympathy towards those who jump into the public arena. It's a crucible. There's a tremendous amount of, um, of public scrutiny that goes into being a candidate of any stripe. Um, you got to have thick skin, and it's humbling. And so it's, it's definitely humbling, humbled me, and I will uh, treat politics more gingerly and think about what I say about politicians before I speak on Twitter or social media, maybe a little bit more. Um, but otherwise, I found people to be supportive, understanding, and and good uh, in the end. And and that's that's oh, that was gratifying. And so I'm I'm happy I did this, and I look forward to continuing this journey and see where it ends. And and you know for for anyone who is um, either a seasoned observer of politics or frankly even a passive one, um, anyone knows that the the level of um, stamina required to be there out on the trail and the level of scrutiny that gets applied to candidates can be a, a quite a grueling one and be very demanding on both the individual's time as well as um, you know their their family obligations and sort of the broader community that they serve with. That relationship can be quickly changed, so it does take a lot. And um, we, regardless of your politics, um, it's an important concept to applaud those that are willing to to raise their hand and really lean into civic participation is perhaps the the most found foundational way, um, as you mentioned at the top, Jonathan, that we can actually shape outcomes and make sure that everything from how we retire with a sense of decency and dignity to how we get to work uh, with a sense of you know an operating subway system can be affected. So for, thank you for not only outlining the the vision behind your your candidacy, but also for just leaning in as a public candidate in a in a quite important race. And hopefully um, we can have you back as the race progresses um, or as your new title actually officially changes uh, come next year. From your lips to God's ears. Thank you, Vikram, so much. Have a great day. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. And and let me let me just round out by saying for those that might be interested in learning more about 
the the campaign um, about the seat um, or any elements about your positions? Is there a place that they can go to to get involved? Sure. Come to my website. There's uh, contact information there. Trichter for New York. It's Trichter, T-R-E-R-F-O-R, NewYork.com. You could email the campaign. Um, you could log on, read a bit about me, look at some of my media appearances, and please reach out. Uh, I'd be thrilled to be in touch. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Good luck out there on the trip. Bye, Vikram. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of the show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.